is Psalm 2, and, and that's what you see before you in your copy of the Bible, but Psalm 2 is actually an extension of Psalm 1. So in, in earlier translations of the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were actually combined. They were just one psalm, and you see that with the language of, of, of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, talking about the blessed man, and then Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 at the very end, talks again, ends talking about the blessed man. So there's these, uh, there's these two bookends to the psalm. And this is why Psalm 1 and 2 uh, are considered the, the, two, the two pillars psalms that we have to pass through to get to the rest of the psalms. So these, these two psalms are summing up for us or giving us an idea of what all of the other psalms are talking about. So you have Psalm chapter 1 being this, this pillar of the law, the pillar of the word. And then now you have Psalm 2 being the pillar of the Son. Because Psalm 2 is what we would classify as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks explicitly of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Augustine said that Jesus is the singer of the entirety of the Psalter. And that's explicitly true in Psalm chapter 2. Since this is a psalm not only about Jesus and his reign over all of the earth, but it's a psalm where Jesus himself actually speaks in it. You hear his voice. And, And just for that reason alone, we need to listen closely for what he wants to tell us. And he's telling us three things in this text. One, he's talking to us about human pride. So we see that in verses 1 through 3. And then he talks to us about God's response to human pride in verses 4 through 9. And then he tells us what our response to God's response should be to our pride. So human pride, God's response, and then our response. So first, human pride. I can say this with confidence, that there is not one person in this room that can utter the phrase, I'm not prideful. And if you did utter that phrase, you've already just shown how prideful you are, because that statement alone is prideful to say. My wife had somebody tell her one time that pride was not something that she, this other woman, not my wife, because she is prideful, but The other woman said to her that pride was not something she struggled with. And I said, that statement alone tells me that she struggles with that. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who is just such an interesting character in in history, um, a writer, apologist, um, said some some pretty clever and witty things. But he said that if uh, if he were to write just one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against the sin of pride. To which he told some of those who who were kind of uh, rebuking him from the outside and lobbing these shots, as people like to do, that told him that his drinking was a sin. This is what he says, that he would swear off drinking when the temperance reformer swore to total abstinence from the sins of pride, spiritual insolence, self-praise, and the contempt of common things. 
Chesterton was saying that even more than this outward vice that they were trying to, to, uh, to, to make him feel guilty of, he says, we have this inward vice that's even more deadly called pride. And it's actually eating you alive. Because pride is, is dangerous because it's, it's often very quiet. It's very subtle. And it can often be masked in piety. And so we think we're, we can look at other people and think we're better than them and think, well, this is what God's doing in my life and therefore I can stand above them. That's pride. And verses 1 through 3 give us an example of how far human pride can take you. Because ultimately, pride left untouched will lead you to the same place uh, these kings and rulers are in our text. Raging against God. Protesting against the Lord. Because they want freedom. But the freedom they want is a freedom from their creator. They don't want to be bound to the law of God anymore. But this is actually the same freedom, if you think about it, that the devil tempted Adam and Eve with in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. He knew the struggle. He knew that at some level they thought they were bound to God, and they just didn't realize it yet. So it, all it took was for the devil to say this to Adam and Eve. No, you will, not, you will certainly not die if you take of the fruit in fact god knows that when you eat when you eat it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil and we know what happens from that point on so he's basically saying to them god has you in bondage god does not want you to be happy god does not want you to be joyful he he doesn't want you to be free and you need to break free to be who you want to be. So in Psalm 2, verse 3, the kings and rulers plan to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now you may notice the language there is plural in the use of the, uh, of, of the word there which signals that they're not addressing a generic God here. They're not just kind of talking into, into empty space and, and just saying, look, we don't, we don't believe in a God. We don't believe in any God out there. What they're saying right now is that they actually do believe in God, and they believe in a very specific God, and that is the God of the Bible, which makes it even worse because they're not ignorant of who God is. They're not ignorant of his good gifts to them. They're not ignorant to his work in the world. So at some level, in their belief system, they know who they are dealing with. This is the God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God that we just, that we just confessed in our statement of faith in the Apostles' Creed. Three in one, one in three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they want nothing to do with any of them. In 1966, uh, Time magazines, uh, from, from what I understand, is their most iconic cover uh, that asked the question in bold red letters, Is God dead? Is God dead? 
It was a shocking cover at, at that time, but as with everything, the article was, was far more nuanced than the cover might suggest. So what the article sought to address was the absence of God in the public sphere, which prompted this question, is God dead? Is he relevant to those in this world anymore? Are we even talking about him in, in the affairs of life anymore? Is God dead? Because it didn't seem like he was alive, even by those in the church during this time. And the point being in that article, that even those who would say that they believe in the God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and at that time in 1966, according to certain research groups, uh, I think it was 98% of Americans believed in God at that time. And yet this question was still being asked because it didn't seem like they believed in him. Because even though you, you say that you believe in the God of the Bible, some don't live as though he actually exists. Subtlety is always what is most dangerous in your life. Uh, the little things that you ignore, the passivity that you show, they all begin to grow into this same kind of rebellion that you see in verse 3. To the point that somebody could look at your life and say, and ask the question that Time Magazine asked, is your God dead now? Because as you let this, these little things go and this passivity just begin to overwhelm you, you'll no longer begin to see God as your loving father, but as a cruel tyrant who has you in his chains. And so at some point, you'll begin to cry out, uh, as the kings and the rulers did, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's too much. Because as James Montgomery Boyce said of these three verses in his commentary, he says, we cannot understand this psalm until we realize that it's an expression of the rebellion of the human heart against God. Your human heart. My human heart. Do you understand that you and I are the rebels of verses 1 through 3? We are those people. We are those people shaking our fist in rage against the God of the universe. We are those people who are protesting against God and telling and saying, let us shake off these chains and loosen these ropes from us. We want to be free. Do you understand that your heart is a rebel? It's why I think the hymn writer wrote the line in Come Thou Fount. I think I've read this before. I'm sure I have, but it's, it's too good. He wrote, these, he wrote these, these verses, Bind my wandering heart to thee. That's one of the lines in his, in his song. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. All of our hearts are prone to wander. All of our hearts need to be bound back to God, the God that we love. 
Well, thankfully, God is not passive, nor is he generic. So in succession to this rebellion, all three persons of the Godhead begin to show up in the next couple of points on, on this, on, in our sermon outline. But, but the first one to show up is God the Father. And in these next few verses, we see the Father's response, or God's response, to human pride. So you first see there in verse 4, verse 4 records the only occurrence of God laughing in the Bible. But this is not the laughter of joy. This is not the laughter uh, of, of someone who has just been told a funny joke. This is not the laughter of someone who is just who has just overcome uh, with emotion and that laughter is all they can, they can, that can come forth from them. This is a laughter of terror. God laughs as a man would laugh at the threat of a child. It's a laugh of scoffing. So just as the scoffers scoffed at God back in chapter 1, verse 1, God now is scoffing at them to communicate that he is not affected by their threats of throwing off the bonds and and loosing their or cast away uh, casting away their their cords from themselves. No God is is not moved. God does not hide and the text tells us that God doesn't even rise from where he is sitting. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He doesn't even get up from his throne. He simply laughs and then speaks to them in his wrath. To which I believe Revelation chapter 6 verses 12 through 17 in the New Testament gives an apt description of what this looks like. Let me just read that for us. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth. And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You have to understand this. That God is not and will never be passive about your rebellion against him. This is what Psalm 2 is telling us. This is what Revelation 6 just told us. God is not passive about your rebellious heart. He is not passive about our sin. Never has been from the very beginning. Remember Genesis Chapter 3, Adam and Eve are the crown of God's creation. The only human beings walking the face of the earth, walking with God day and night, uh, a, a personal, intimate relationship with Him. In His presence, 
and yet they are still cast out from him in their sin. God is furiously angry at your rebellion. And there is no way that you can stand under his wrath. You need someone who can do that. Because you can't do it. Remember chapter 1, Psalm 1, there at the end, uh, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. What that means is the wicked cannot stand in the judgment because the wicked will be crushed by the wrath of God. So in verse 6, God tells us God's response to human pride, and this is what he says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God is doing what his enemies were seeking to prevent in verse 3. They did not want God to set up a king. They did not want God to set up a ruler. But God here is setting up his own king. And this king will be the one that exercises God's sovereign rule over all the earth, and then one who also establishes the kingdom of God on the earth. And so in verses 7 through 9, the voice of Jesus now uh, comes into the picture here and then confirms two things about himself that relates back to what God just said about this king that he will establish on Zion. So two things. His sonship in verse 7, and then his kingship in verses 8 through 9. So concerning his, his sonship and his kingship, Jesus is telling us here in Psalm 2 what his heavenly Father has just said to him and about him. You are my son. Today, which we could, we could, just, uh, we could say is the day of his coronation, the day that he has crowned the king of the universe, today I have become your father. God says that to Jesus, his son here in Psalm 2. So let me, let me, let me clear up some things here. So this is, this, is a, this is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, so the covenant that God made with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in, in the Old Testament that says this, Talking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, obviously, David is, has been dead for a long time now. Um, David was alive then, but he, he was soon to be dead. So, how could David be established as the king forever? How could his, his kingdom be established as king forever except in Christ? And so we have David writing the psalm to us here and telling us this is exactly what God meant. This is his fulfillment. So then you have Acts chapter 13 into the New Testament, verses 32 through 39. Paul refers to Jesus using these words of Psalm 2 that that sheds even more light on what God means when he says, Today I have become your father. Because that can be a pretty confusing statement. But this is what he means. So like I say almost every week, Scripture interprets Scripture. So this is what Scripture is doing for us this morning. 
And it gives us more clarity to why this, this throne will be established forever as well. So Acts 13. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 1 Samuel 7. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then Paul also puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. That Jesus was the first one to be resurrected into life, which means uh, Jesus is the forerunner to us, which means we too will be resurrected to life. So going back to Psalm 2, what we have is Jesus, in his own words here in Psalm 2, telling us of his glorious resurrection, which is to say he has defeated every king, he has defeated every ruler and every one of God's enemies through his life, death, and resurrection. And by doing this, Jesus, Jesus has loosed the chains off of his beloved, those who would say that they believe, and given them true freedom. So the Father's response to your rebellion is to send his son. Because he knows the only way your rebellion can be subdued is through Christ. The only way that you can stand underneath God's wrath is in Christ. And that the only way to be truly free is in Christ not rebelling against him and, and trying to, to do it yourself. It is only in Christ that we find true freedom. Commentator Derek Kidner, he put it this way. He says, there is, there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. There's no refuge from him, only in him. We can't run away from him. We can't loose the bonds ourselves. We have to do that only in Christ. And so the last thing that Jesus would have us see is how we are to respond to God's response to our pride. So God is, God is, is, is wonderful because he doesn't leave us to guessing. He doesn't say, okay, here, here is how you're acting. Here are the consequences. This is how I'm going to act, and it's going to be awful if you don't get with what I'm doing. Now just figure it out. It's not what God does. He doesn't leave us to guess about what our response should be. He gives us the response. 
He says, this is what you should do. He provides us with it in his grace, a way in which we can respond to him. The great preacher Henry Ironside made, the, made this observation uh, about Psalm 2, that there are, there are four voices speaking in Psalm 2, and I've already talked about three of them, but he says uh, you have the voice of the world in, in verses 1 through 3. So if you're like me and you like to write those things in your Bible, here's the time to write. Um, you have the voice of God the Father in verses 4 through 6. You have the voice of God the Son in verses 7 through 9. And then here... In verses 10 through 12, it is not a stretch to say that you are hearing the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is speaking to you through His Word. That is how He speaks to you, through His Word. And so here is a very gentle, a very loving, a very tender voice saying the same thing that Jesus later says in Mark 1.15. This is him saying this to you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, note you have to notice in verse 10 who these words are being spoken to. So look at verse 10 with me in, in Psalm chapter Psalm chapter 2. The Spirit, so the Spirit is speaking, and this is this is who he's talking to. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. So what's happening here, if you look back at verses 1 through, th one through 3, uh, is that the Spirit is addressing the rebels. He is addressing those who would cast off their bonds, who would want to get rid of every part of God in their lives. The same king and rulers, kings and rulers, who would, who would rid themselves of God completely are the same kings and rulers the Spirit of God is calling here in verses 10 and 11. And if you remember what Jonah read from us from Acts earlier, that those kings and rulers are also representative of, of us. We are those kings and rulers as well. That we all fit into that category sometime. And the Spirit is saying to you, turn from your proud autonomy. Turn from setting yourself against God's anointed king. And instead, he says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, knowing that the God you mock, the God that you, that you scoff against, the God that you, that you shake your fist at and rage against, this God in his mercy still comes to you. Jesus describes God in this way in Luke 12, 5. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. And over and over again throughout the Bible, you are being reminded that one day he is coming as the great judge of all. And that day will be both 
depending on where you stand, depending on what road you're on, the narrow road uh, that leads to life or the broad way that leads to destruction, that day will either be glorious or it will be terrifying. And that is what Jesus is saying here. But let me just remind you, because we're all sitting here right now and we're, you know, air-conditioned, it's comfortable, we all have clothes on our back, food in our, in our bellies. Let me just remind you, today is not that day. Today is not that day of judgment. There's still time to repent and believe the gospel. God, out of, out of his love for the world in this particular way, in his mercy, is giving you time. So actually, what today is, is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's grace toward you. And he invites you to come. And he does this, I think, in the most beautiful way in verse 12. When he says to us, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Now to kiss the hand of a sovereign, uh, like a king or a queen, we don't have that uh, here in America. But to kiss the hand of a sovereign is a symbol of personal fidelity and loyalty to that sovereign ruler. So when you, when you would kiss, if you kissed the hand of the queen, symbolically you were saying, I will give my life for you. And in turn, that sovereign will also give their life for you. Friends, the hand that Christ offers you is not a hand that is adorned with jewels, but it's a hand that is adorned with scars. And these are scars that remind you of the great cost in which he bought you. God bound his son and he bound his son in your sin and he bound his son in your death so that you could be unbound from your cords and loosed from your chains which is sin so that you could be truly free so Psalm 2 ends as Psalm 1 began Reminding all of those who, who take their refuge in Christ, who take their refuge in the, the King, who are set free by His grace, that those are the ones who are truly blessed and truly happy. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank You. Thank you that you have given us your words today, that you have spoken to us by your spirit to remind us again that we cannot stand before you apart from Christ. That we cannot say that we can come to your throne of grace freely uh, just on our own, but that we come to your throne of grace through Christ and with Christ. And so, Father, I pray for all of those here who may be uh, shaking their fist in rage against you, trying to break those bonds 
uh, to, to get away from you, God, that they would stop rebelling and that they would kiss the Son and through that be reminded of the great sacrifice that you made by sending your only begotten Son so that we could all be truly free from our sin. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.